Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Macron and Trump reach a temporary truce on tariffs. What does that mean for the wine industry? Top Hunter Valley winery Tyrrells estimates 80% crop loss due to smoke taint. Production of Italian wine fell by 12% in 2019, although exports grew. Burst tank spills over 350,000 litres of Cabernet Sauvignon into the Russian River. Canadian winery cleared of wrongful dismissal of a cellar worker. And as ever, our wine of the week. So for our week in wine, last night we emptied our wallets and splurged on a very high-end dinner at Bar Cren, the annex to the highly acclaimed Atelier Cren in San Francisco. Dominique Cren is the chef proprietor and is doing some incredible things with her seafood-focused menu. It's a prefix menu, and upon arrival, the menu is presented to you with only a couple of words to describe each course so that guests continue to be surprised throughout the meal. And it also means that the SOM team has their work cut out for them since guests rely heavily on their knowledge of the menu to help them choose the best pairing. But Matthew and I knew what we wanted. Uh, We settled on Domaine Dujac's white Maury Saint-Denis 2017, and it was as sensational as the food. And also we started off with some champagne as well, which went very well with the uh, um, fish. It was a little champagne split. Mm-hmm. Who was the producer? Uh, Jean Vassel. Uh, one of my favorites. Yeah. And overall, it was a very pricey endeavor, but we appreciated every moment. And even you, Matthew, you're not so keen on shellfish, but I think I saw you eat and enjoy an abalone. I believe so. I still have no idea what one of those is, but um, it was presented to me and I, I dived in and it's quite enjoyable and went very well with the um, the wine that we were drinking. And also for the wine, not, not forgetting that we finished with some spectacular sweet wine. We had a Madeira from 1994, which was just sensational, Malvasia, as well as a Reef Salt from 1979, which is older than you, Katie. That's right. And then we even got a little bit of a Sautern, right? That was a gift from the sommelier. So that didn't go amiss either. Overall, a very, very satisfying experience. And just experimenting with the food and wine pairings throughout the meal without really knowing what's coming next is fascinating and very enjoyable. Well done, Dominique. And their wine team. And now, on with the news. More news on tariffs and trade wars, which have been threatening the wine and drinks industry recently. As the pod has reported in the past, the US government was threatening 100% tariffs on European wine in retaliation for proposed French taxes imposed on US tech giants. However, some welcome good news this week, as Presidents Macron and Trump met on Sunday and declared a truce of sorts. After their meeting, Macron tweeted that they had agreed to postpone the taxes and any retaliatory tariffs until the end of the year, while the two countries work with the OECD to come to an international consensus on how best to tax global giants like Google, Amazon and Facebook. So this provides a temporary period of stability for the wine industry, although in a separate dispute, the industry is still coming to terms with the 25% tariffs imposed on certain drinks imported into the U.S., which came into effect in October of last year. The consequences of those tariffs were felt immediately. The value of imported French wine in November was $57 million compared to $85 million the previous November. So we can understand why the industry was so relieved to hear of the removal of the threat to impose 100% tariffs on all European wines imported into the states. 
So there's been fevered speculation um, here in the US about the possibility of 100% tariffs being introduced. So there was a huge collective sigh of relief that the issue seems to have gone away, at least until the end of the year. But even without their imposition, the prospect of tariffs has caused a great deal of uncertainty in the industry, with importers not knowing how much wine to bring in, whether to stockpile it or to wait until things have calmed down. So on top of the 25% tariffs introduced in October, this is a very difficult, unstable period for the wine industry in the US. Yeah, just among our own friends who have been, you know, looking for jobs or looking at uh, switching jobs, you see that many companies, uh, at least importers, are hesitant to take on any new uh, costs or hiring new people just because of the uncertainty here. So it's affecting uh, all aspects of the industry, really. And politicians don't seem to realize the consequences of even speculation, let alone their actions. As we've reported on the pod over the past few weeks, the Australian bushfires have had devastating effects on land, animals, and people. But so far, the wine region most devastated by the fires has been Adelaide Hills. However, now as the grape harvest begins in Australia, Tyrrell's Wines of Hunter Valley in New South Wales is reporting a major loss due to smoke taint, over 80% of their crop. Winery owner and fourth-generation family member Bruce Tyrrell says the impact of smoke taint is, quote, not universal across the region, and that this decision has been our own and reinforces our premium quality standing in the world of fine wine. Time will tell how great the effects of intense smoke and air pollution resulting in the fires will be on the 2020 harvest, but already we're getting the news as the harvest begins that um, Tyrrells at least are predicting a, lo- a great loss. Adelaide Hills has suffered greatly. They've lost a third of their vineyards, and that's in a cooler part of Australia. And so we'll just see what the effects are and what the losses are, and it'll probably be, as uh, Bruce mentioned, quite localised from winery to winery and quite unpredictable. <laughs> So 2018 was a bumper crop in Italy, as it was in other regions around the world, but 2019 saw a return to more of the normal. After an increase in production of more than 14% in 2018, in 2019 it fell by 12%. Extreme weather conditions throughout the year were blamed, and overall it was a bad year for Italian agriculture, with a decline of 1.3%, a drop worth 14 billion euros. However, exports of Italian wine rose by 4% to 6.4 billion euros in 2019 compared to 2018, helped by the large 2018 crop and also by the rush to buy Prosecco in the UK before Brexit hits. Yes, uh, Prosecco figures in the UK were actually up by 11%, which is a significant amount given how much Prosecco the Brits already drink. Uh, We keep hearing speculation that the Prosecco bubble will burst, and it's certainly difficult to see how producers can make more of the stuff. But demand keeps on rising. It's a fun, easy, inexpensive drink which people enjoy a lot. So it's no wonder producers are so keen to protect the name from the Australians, as we discussed on the pod last week. But it also could well be that it suffers from the impact of Brexit. Champagne traditionally has been a barometer for the state of the economy, and maybe Prosecco will now as well. Yes, and this week does see the official withdrawal of the UK from the EU on Friday. and um, You sound like you're speaking at a funeral, Matthew. It is a funeral, yes. 
there will be some people celebrating, but a lot of people mourning. And no one knows what's going to happen afterwards. There's going to be some very frantic trade negotiations throughout the rest of the year. So we'll see um, how those go and how those impact the wine industry in the UK and elsewhere. A dramatic headline in the local Sonoma newspaper this week a reported 97,000 gallons of wine spilt into the Russian River. 97,000 gallons equates to 367,000 liters, so that's a lot of wine. The accident occurred at Rodney Strong, where a tank burst, releasing the Cabernet Sauvignon, which ran into a nearby creek, which feeds into the Russian River. It's not clear how much of it made its way into the river, and the winery said they are doing everything they can to protect the local environment from the spilt wine and 50 volunteers are monitoring the state of the river. Rodney Strong also said only 20 to 25% of the wine was actually lost, rather than the reported 367,000 liters, as they transferred the wine from the tank once they realized wine was leaking out. So there doesn't seem to have been a significant damage done to the river and surrounding area, and in theory it should simply be diluted by the water and washed away by rain, but a situation which could have been worse for sure. And it's also important to always read the full story, as the amount Rodney Strong claim was lost is different from the headline figures reported in the newspapers. Mission Hill Winery, based in Okanagan in British Columbia, Canada, this week won a case clearing them of wrongful dismissal of a cellar worker who had neglected to turn off the valve on a tank, causing 5,680 litres of Sauvignon Blanc worth 162,000 Canadian dollars to be lost. Following instructions, he had to leave the valve open for 30 minutes, but also had to check after 15 minutes to ensure there were no leaks, which he failed to do. His union filed a case of wrongful dismissal, arguing that colleagues who had also made mistakes which had led to significant loss of wine had received far less punitive punishments. However, the tribunal found in favour of Mission Hill, as he had previously made a similar error and due to inconsistent evidence he gave. The cellar worker also argued that as it was in the middle of the harvest when he was constantly working overtime, such a mistake was understandable. However, that argument was also dismissed, as he had no other tasks on hand when he was working on the tank of Sauvignon Blanc. So Katie, you've worked in the cellar, and I think you can comment on the importance of following instructions when uh, working with wine. Yes, and while I do understand the perspective of the cellar workers stating, you know, I mean, during harvest, it's long, long hours, usually uh, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So people are known to have fatigue and that can cause forgetfulness or clumsiness. Uh, So that's why you have to be on point all the time and make sure that you always have people uh, double checking your work. That's why it's really important to rely on your team. Yes, I remember you telling me stories of uh, um, accidents happening and screams around the winery for everyone to be uh, on the spot right away so everyone would work together to make sure the accident was resolved. And I think you, your team would always do that. Oh yeah, definitely a lot of camaraderie there. And you never realized how close you were until those moments of crisis hit and they had your back. <laughs> For some reason, we keep choosing wines that are a real mouthful to say for our wine of the week. So here goes. This week, the wine is Arachea Irugali 2017, made by husband and wife team Michelle and Therese Rius Peru. 
<laughs> Irulegui is a very small region in the foothills of the Pyrenees in Basque, France, hence the difficult to pronounce names. It's not a region you see too often, and it was a lot of fun to try it this week. Wine has been made in Irulegui for centuries, and it's very popular with pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago. One of the traditional starting points, San Jean Pied de Port, is within the appellation. I've been to that village, it's very pretty. Mm. But by the 1980s, production was tiny and mainly for local cooperatives. And this is when Michel, who's from the region, and Therese, his wife from Alsace, whom he met in Africa while on military service, decided to move to Ruligui and rented two hectares of vineyards, eventually moving towards organic and biodynamics. They now own eight hectares and have done as much as anyone to bring attention to the area. And they're imported into the States by Kermit Lynch, who specializes in small producers reimagining overlooked regions. So the wine is 66% Tanat, a tannic variety found across southwest France, and 17% each of Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon, which give the wine a noticeable herbaceousness. Despite being in southwest France, Eruligui is cool and wet due to the proximity of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, alcohol is just 12%, and this is a pretty light-bodied red. It's fruity, and lots of there's lots of acidity, and a stocky tannic structure as well. It's reminiscent of both the Loire and Beaujolais. And in fact, I tasted it blind, and I did think it was from the Loire Valley, uh, but even lighter-bodied and very much its own thing. So it costs just $33. It's not cheap, but well worth experimenting with. And when we looked up this wine in the, well, Iruligi itself in uh, the Oxford Companion to Wine, uh, Jancis Robinson's comment was that there are many X's on the label. Isn't that right? Yes, it's actually in the World Atlas of Wine, uh, but yes. yes. Um, she did manage to say that, and it's quite an amusing comment. Disappointingly, there's only one X on this label, mm-hmm. but even so, quite difficult to pronounce. And this wine is quite different from what I was expecting, because it's southwest France. I thought it would be bigger, fuller, rustic and very tannic, but instead it's very light, very fresh, lots of acidity, as you mentioned. And and what you really got was the greenness, wasn't it? That really caught your nose. Yes, all in all, a very food-friendly wine. Cheers to that! So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. And we invite you to take a moment and write a review and rate us on Apple Podcasts because that's how people find us is good reviews by our lovely listeners. Yeah. So if you like us and want to spread the word, then do that. Until next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.